0: Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Brits on Flicks seeing as it's the Halloween season, time for a good horror movie Brian and myself have decided to choose a special movie out of uh, horror history that we want to just review and a sort of truncated episode and that movie that we've picked is John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982 Now Brian, do you have any kind of history with this movie? Have you seen it? Do you love it?
1: I have a very minor history with this film in the sense that I've never actually seen it all the way through until obviously watching it for this review. Um, When I was about, I don't know, 11, maybe 11 years old, I remember seeing the scene where the, the head, comes off the body and grows legs. I, li- literally, like, I think my brother was watching it with my mum and dad. My brother was older. He would have been, like, about 15, 16 at that point. Uh, and I I kind of wandered into the room. I don't know if I'd gone to bed at that point or whether I was just out and I'd, I'd just got, got in or something. But I kind of wandered into the room and they were watching it. And I think my mum was kind of, Somewhat disinterested, I think she was kind of watching it because my my dad and my brother were watching it, and it was just like, yeah, she you know essentially was forced to watch it because they were. So I come into the room and I sit down while while all this mayhem just suddenly starts to ensue, and and literally I was just horrified um, that that scene just <laughs> scarred me because I, I I didn't have a clue what was going on. These these guys are all around this table. And then all this crazy stuff starts going on. Bodies just start turning into weird creatures. It starts pulling apart. It grows legs. They burn it alive. I'm just freaked out. And I can tell my mum can tell that I'm freaked out. So I, I don't know. I think she did something to distract me. And in the end, I just thought, you know what? I'm gonna leave, or I think my mum may have actually had them turn it off, I think it was getting late and I think she was just like, right, I think it's bedtime now anyway, let's let's turn this off. You know the way mums do when they're like, kind of shiftily do it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, for whatever reason it stopped there and I never had the urge to go back and watch it because like I said, I think I was a bit scared for life after that point. But now, you know, I'm older, I can take things. I've I've seen plenty of films where now it's just, you know, I look at things and it's just special effects now. And, it, it, it yeah, it just doesn't hit me in the same way. So it's always been a film from, I don't know, from, from for the past 10 years that I felt, you know, I should revisit that at some point. I should go back and watch that. And when you told me it was uh, one of your favourite horror films, I figured, you know what?
0: Halloween's approaching, why not, let's do it. Myself, I've always kind of had the thing in my life at some point, it's always been there. And I remember very early on, my mum and dad uh, had hired out the video shop and I got sent off to bed before they were going to watch it um, and told that it's not for kids, I wouldn't like it, it wouldn't be for me. And of course, telling that to a kid, I, I must have been about seven, eight, Telling that to me was like, you know, just teasing me, letting me know that I had to watch it. So I remember getting up the next morning, eh, knowing full well that they sometimes were in their bed. I was up early, I was an early riser, I went down the stairs, put the video in and just watched it before they got up, you know. And and the the fact that I was watching something that I wasn't supposed to watch just made it extra exciting. And the fact that I had never seen anything like the thing before, it just kind of stuck in in my head and, and all through life I've picked up various copies of it I've watched it whenever it's happened to be on TV look at the video, DVD Blu-ray, whatever there is and it's always been in my top 10 movies of all time it's just something that I absolutely love I'm a huge John Carpenter fan and the thing is just an amazing movie and, and when you suggested watching this for like a, a bonus episode I was like yeah, why, why wouldn't I I got an excuse to watch it I watched it on a Friday night and then the next night I was going to go and watch the prequel that came out a few years ago um, and I was like you know what screw that I'm just going to watch the, the thing again so I watched it Friday I watched it Saturday night um, and I was very tempted to put it on the night again but I ran out of time um, I just absolutely love the thing so hopefully my review will have some good points in it rather than just I think it's fantastic mm, <laughs> it's great it's mm. great how, so what we'll, we'll what was you.
1: your impact then? That that time when you watched it as a kid, when you sneaked that video in, were you, did that mm-hmm. scare you when you first watched it, or just?
0: No, I, I was one of these uh, weird kids. Um, b- before, you had the sense of kids shouldn't see this kind of thing. Like I remember, or I was told that um, when Video Machines first came out, I think I was like, Three or something, two, three And we got one, and the neighbours down from us Had a, a couple of Cassettes that they had, and they had um, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Um, And, and My mum's told me, and this isn't Like a good parent guide for any future Parents out there, but I used to repeatedly Watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre And in fact if it got stopped midway Through I would howl and cry until It get put back on so I could watch the rest of it So I think I've always been one of those Like strange people that that don't really see, it didn't really see the horror in that kind of thing, so when I was watching the thing I was more kind of marveled by what was going on and the things that I, I, I was seeing on screen, and to me the, 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 the horrible creations that are on there are, are, are almost beautiful pieces of art when I look at it, <laughs> it's, it's a strange reaction to it but it didn't, it never, the, the monsters never scared me. The moments that scared me were the quiet moments where you didn't really know who was the bad person, so to speak.
1: And have you seen the prequel then since?
0: No, every time I go to put the prequel on, I just pick the 1982 one and throw it back on.
1: The thing is, the prequel, uh, I saw first. Obviously, I mean, except except for Uh that scene on the table that I described earlier, which you know horrified me for many a year the prequel was you know for me i saw it first so i have that unique kind of perspective of being able to take that film entirely on its own merits without any kind of you know preconceptions or ideas about what to expect because of because of seeing the original um Mm-hmm. which in itself was a remake, uh, but I really liked the prequel. I really liked the, the new one, and when you watch it and you get to the end, it pretty much picks... It, it, finish, it finishes off exactly where mm-hmm. the one we're about to review picks up. So mm-hmm. you can literally watch the two films back-to-back, and it works quite well as one long film but I I really enjoyed it I gave it like an 8 out of 10 Um, and when it came out I think I think it got on the whole it got fairly decent reviews but I think some people were a bit sniffy about it um, and I think that sniffiness just comes out of purely being such fans of the original like I say because I didn't have that history with it I really, really did like it, and I think if you if you go into it with open, op, uh, with an open mind, kind of view it through the eyes of maybe not someone who has this deep history, this deep love mm-hmm. of the uh, John Carpenter one. I think you'll be richly rewarded from it.
0: See, I don't have that kind of feeling. We're the thing is so precious to me that they can't make a sequel or a prequel to it. I'm not one of those people that instantly get offended that they're remaking something from my youth, you know. That movie, the, the thing, the 1982 thing, is always going to be there. It's never going to change because of this new movie. It, it doesn't matter to me. It just, it's a, it's a two-pack set I've got. So it's in the one case, the prequel and the 1982 thing. And when I open up that case... I just go for the 1982 version. I will watch the, the the prequel at some point and you know if good bad or indifferent it's not going to ruin the, the 1982 one for me but just been open that case there's only one choice every single time.
1: Get it get it watched man cuz it is really good and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is very good in it as well. She makes a a good candidate for the kind of modern age Ripley. I'm not saying I'm not saying she's as good as Sigourney Weaver. I'm not <laughs> saying you know she's she's that that good but I, th- I think she holds her own quite well in that film and yeah she, she's got a ripley-esque kind of quality about her i think I, th- I, th- I think it's a good film i really like it check it out definitely
0: mm. i will do so do you have a synopsis of the thing
1: i do in the winter of 1982 a scientific research team in antarctica are met by a deadly shape-shifting alien force as the team slowly realise that any one of them could be this creature, paranoia takes over their senses and they begin to turn on one another in a desperate effort to stay alive. And there you go, that's pretty much my synopsis of the film. This is the shortest synopsis that I think I've ever done. For, for, I mean, we're only like four podcasts in, but yeah, that, that literally sums up the film. Um, It's a very, very simple concept and I love films that kind of work off really simple concepts like this.
0: You're new to it. Why don't you give me your opinion or or something that you would like to talk about first?
1: Well, for me... (laughs) Again, I've seen a lot of things that deeply inspired by this film <clears throat> um, that I would g- go so far as to say rip off this film without, haver ever, without having ever seen this film so as you know um, I've mentioned this many times on the podcast I'm a huge X-Files fan <laughs> there is an X-Files episode that is pretty much a remake of this film and it is an absolutely brilliant episode of television, any television, not just X-Files, but just television in general. And it's really claustrophobic. It's it's really paranoic, if that's a word. Um, I don't know what the, the correct word for that is, but it, <laughs> it, it basically it thrives on the paranoia of the characters that are in the situation, and it makes you, the viewer, paranoid for them as well. Um, and... That's exactly what this film is. As I say, the the episode in question just pretty much rips off the thing. And all that paranoia is right here in this film. And that's the element that Mm -hmm. I really love about it. The cast of characters that they have, they're not like... Like today, if you made this film, and again, this is something that I enjoyed about the prequel. Um, with aside from Mary Elizabeth Winstead, which you know, who's a very beautiful actress, the majority of the the rest of the cast are all kind of plain-looking people. They're they're, they're just yeah. average-looking people. They look like they could be scientists, and that's one of the things I like about this film is that they just look like normal, regular Joes who. You know, who who are probably a bunch of scientist guys. Even uh, Kurt Russell in this doesn't... You know, they've, they've not dressed him up to look like the stud kind of guy that I know they can make him up to be in some films. Uh, you think of some of the stuff that he's done with, like, Goldie Hawn and whatnot, you know. Um, none of that's there. This is literally... It's played for real. And because of that, because you... Because you buy that these guys are real people, real characters, real world characters that you can believe in. When they start getting paranoid, when they start turning on each other, it, it really sells it. You you buy into that. You get into their heads, um, and the, and the film as a result gets under your skin.
0: I think you're hundred percent right, and it's one of my favourite things about it is the cast, the characters. You know, like if this was made now, you'd be terrified that we we're going to fill it with like, TV actors, you know, in the mid to late uh, 20s, they all look similar, they all have that same look, but these are all people that look as if they've lived lives, you know, they're various of ages, they're various creed colours, backgrounds, whatever, and they just seem to fit the roles perfectly, And, and, and they all seem to be individuals as well, they have their own little traits, their own little quirks as they move on, the only person that you can see would would fit into the pretty boy look, like you said, is Kurt Russell, but they give him the biggest beard that they possibly can to <laughs> so hide that kind yeah. of look. You, know, you can understand why somebody in that area would have that kind of facial hair mm. as well. <laughs> but, you know, the characters are great, but I think the, the biggest talking point in the movie itself, or the thing it's revered for, is the special effects.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And, and even watching it now, and it's 34, maybe 35 years since it was made, they still hold up, and I think it's a testament to practical effects. something that's almost like a forgotten art.
1: They they have much more of an impact on me, you know, personally speaking. It's just, Mm -hmm. when you have something that is physical, where you literally feel like you could reach out and touch it, and we spoke about this in our review of The Frighteners, that any fear was completely taken out of us by the fact that it, it just didn't feel physical. Like, the, the the ghosts in that film that were that, that were haunting this woman, particularly at the beginning yeah. of it, because it was this kind of shiny, glossy CGI effect, there was no real physicality to it, because you know it's CGI, it takes the threat out of it, it takes the fear factor out of it. But when you look at the physical effects in this film, and you see see the pus, you see the blood, you see the sweat, you see the the texture of the skin that has been twisted and warped, it's just... It's cringy, it's ugly, it's greasy, and it just... It has much more of an impact on the viewer, I think, than, than any CGI effects ever could...
0: Especially, I I think I'm trying to think back to the the movie and say so the, the main first uh, special effects sequence is the dog mm. when it gets put into the kennel and its, like and its
1: face just literally rips open.
0: Okay. Yeah, and this the skull just falls away and it's got all these tentacles and it's horrible and you just even get that strange dog that's trying to bite its way through the fence to get away from mm. this thing. It just looks horrible. It's disgusting. And then later on in the movie when you have the character that's on the table that's had some sort of attack and they go to give him the the, the paddles to give him the electric shock and the chest cavity just opens up (laughs) and you know reading into the movie like I have done so many times they got like a real life amputee and attached the prosthetic arms to them so that it did actually close and tear the arms off and just doing things it's just uh, special effects are, are wonderful but I don't know if they're I think they're so wonderful because it's an alien creature as well, and it's not something we're supposed to have seen before. Yeah, And, and, and even the effects of, or the first body that they find on the Norwegian uh, base that they bring back, it's all kind of half human, half monstrous, it's all misshapen, it's a disgusting disgusting looking thing but you can almost well you can tell that there's been hours of craft put into creating that thing it's physical they're there they're touching it they're cutting parts over it they're pulling things out it feels textured it feels like there's a real weight to it and it's obviously helping the actors act as well
1: there's a real creativity I think to the design I mean that scene with the dog when it changes Mm. and you, you see these little red kind of spindly tentacles coming out of its back and it just it's sick it's disgusting and like you say when you see that dog literally trying to bite its way out just because it's doing anything to just get the hell out of there that's kind of how i feel as a viewer that's how i you know i i Mm -hmm. put myself in that position i'm like yep i would be i would literally be Tear, I would tear my arm off if it got me out of there, away from whatever the heck that thing is. Um, and it, But it's just, yeah, they, they can push the boundaries because there's no real rules um, with regards to what this thing looks like. It's just, it, it imitates a particular life form, but be, between looking like one thing and then looking like another, that changing process, it could it can look like anything It could, because it's changing at a molecular level, that, you know, it, and, it, and mm-hmm. it's just that change can be as ugly and as messy as the, as the special effects team can think of, can create, basically, mm-hmm. and they do get really creative with it.
0: Like we said, we were talking about the dogs here for a second. I, I'd just like to take a moment and talk about the dog that's at the start of the movie, that's in it for the first 20 minutes or so. That dog is superbly trained, it's one of the best actors in the movie <laughs> Especially when it's just wandering about the compound You know, it's acting unlike a dog would act It has got. It's, it seems to be super still, it, it's watching everybody that's going on It's creepy as hell, that dog You know, especially when it, it walks into that person's room And you see the shadow of them turn towards it and it just cuts away and, and you know something bad's about to happen yeah.
1: I can't, I can't think of uh, another dog as well that has been used in a film where it has then been played by another dog many years later because <laughs> like I say in the uh, prequel we, we end the the film with the beginning of this film and so it, it's, just, mm. it's quite amusing to think that yeah the dog was so good they they had to Get another dog to to kind of play it again all those years <laughs> later. It's, yeah.
0: But. And then there's there's no female characters in the movie at all. Mm. And there, there's the voice of one from the chess computer at the start, but uh, McCready's quite quick to uh, completely destroy that with <laughs> her.
1: That that was one of the things actually that I really liked about this film, and it stood out to me quite early on, is that. There is no love interest in this film. This film does not get weighed down with the typical Hollywood crap that really annoys me, um, mm-hmm. which is that there always, always has to be a love interest, even if it's even if it's just like a, you know, a minute mm-hmm. part of the film that doesn't really get touched on. You know that some films do you play it down considerably but there'll always be that spark, like maybe at the end of the film. If, you know, if, if, the, if a male and female character have gone through something harrowing, there'll be that slight spark, and towards the end of the film, there'll be a look between them that maybe these two will get it together. I'm sick of that. I'm just like, why do they always have to have that? It's just, you don't. Yeah. If the story is strong enough, if the plot and the characters are strong enough, that's all you need, and this film just works purely on the strength of its idea of this, of this you know, sticking this group of guys in a confined location with an alien that is completely out of their control and mm-hmm. and just let the paranoia build.
0: Like you say, let, letting the paranoia build, and, and they don't try to, like, um, when they kind of figure out what's happening, or when Blair figures out what's happening, they don't really... Um, Second guess them or go, oh, that can't be right. They just take it as fact. They're just like, no, it's an alien, it's a shape shifting alien. They've seen the dog, they've seen the thing that's happening to that. And that's when the, the paranoia really starts to kick in when they realise that this is a shape shifting animal and it could be any of them. And it really just changes the dynamic of the movie because it'd have been very easy for them to show us who the thing was at any point but we have no idea the play is a mystery all the way through the movie we don't know at any time at only one point do we see a person being assimilated mm. by the thing and it gets dispatched pretty quickly That which is another horrifying image of that guy running into the snow with the two hands that haven't fully yeah. formed yeah. and unable to to talk, it just kind of screeches yeah. What's, it's filling like iconic moments for me yeah
1: so it never has a true form that we see i mean yeah. obviously it will have done when it when it first got released from the ship but even then the alien ship in which it crashed landed in could have been mm. a completely different alien race that it took over and that's why it crashed you know so mm. if we saw whatever alien came out of that ship even that might not be its true form. So, that you know, that's one of the great things about it is just this this thing that you cannot see. You cannot know whether it's truly dead or not because it could have passed into something
0: else. So we know from seeing the movie that um, Windows is the thing at a certain point during the movie and we know that Blair is the thing at, some point in the movie as well you see Blair destroying all the equipment and you think it's to keep everybody there trapped there so they're not spreading um, the virus or the thing into the population but it tells you later on in a small scene that he's always built a spacecraft so he's not destroyed the helicopter or the tractor or the the radio equipment to stop them from leaving He's, he's broke it up to hide the fact that he's taken parts to make a spaceship for himself to get off it see I don't think the, the alien in this wants to assimilate the earth wants to take over I think it wants to get the hell off the planet
1: <laughs> yeah I I just didn't pick up on that at all I, I didn't think it was Blair I thought it was um, oh man I'm hazy on the characters names but mm-hmm. the guy who oh, is it the, the one who loves the
0: dogs is it Clark the one that looks after the dogs or Gary the the head
1: Man, I honestly can't remember. Um, I I just I don't think it was Blair though, just because you see the shadow of the when he goes into the bed when the dog goes into the bedroom, you see the shadow
0: mm-hmm.
1: of the guy that he that he's going to take over, and I'm positive that that shadow is a bearded character. It's one of the characters with beards, and Blair doesn't have a beard. He's he's actually one of the few that doesn't yeah i mean i mean i I've actually got it just just to uh, let people know who are uh, who are listening to this I've actually got it playing in the background just now to to help jog my memory because as i said i've only seen this once I saw it just a couple of nights ago and you know as as incredible as I thought it was i I do think it's one of them films that is going to require repeat viewings um mm-hmm. i I haven't managed to fit another one in before watching this and I wish I had but yeah, that that's certainly an element of, you know, who who got taken over. But I don't know, I just... Yeah. For me, I just didn't think... I didn't feel like it was Blair. I feel like... Because I feel like that's one of the tragedies of the film is that they've kept this guy outside, they've kept him kind of locked in the shed, and the tragedy there is that actually they've killed him by by leaving him out there, by kind of... Being so paranoid about it, their paranoia has killed this guy. Um, and to me, mm-hmm. that's the way I read it.
0: There's things as well. Like he he knows everything. He knows that the the thing is going to take over people's bodies. He's looked at the the dodgy um, computer graphics of that happening, <laughs> and then they take him out to a building by himself. When they go back to visit him, he's sitting there with a nice little noose hanging, and he just looks at the, the, the space and the door and just says I'm, I'm ready to come back inside me. I think there's the thing is as well it's not like there's um, only four or five people there is a good about 12 people there mm. maybe yeah. more. and you never really see all of them at one point they're all kind of broken off into like groups or, or they go their separate ways and then I suppose probably my, my favourite scene in the movie just where we're talking about who's the thing is the, the, the testing scene. Where they're um, testing the blood yeah. after mccready has been, they've kind of said that it's Oh McCready. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he gets back, and then they've got the, the blood sample. I,
1: I love the reaction on uh, what's what's the the army guy's name? The Gary. The, the, Gary. He's he's the one who shoots the guy at the beginning of the film. Shoots shoots the guy in the yes. eye. I love his reaction because he's still tied up. And the guy who's been found out to be the thing is literally sat right next to him, and he starts changing, and he's like, get me out of here, get me out of here! And you just really feel for that guy. Um, He's just like, Mm -hmm. yeah, please, someone, someone get him out of there.
0: In that that scene as well, you really see Clark... uh he tries to stop McCready because he thinks he's the thing, and he he gets shot. And they test his blood after the fact to discover that, you know, the fact it's got to the stage now where they're they're killing each other due to the paranoia that they mm. have. Yeah. You know, and it's. it's it, I think one of my favourite things in that scene is is, the way they heat the metal. They really draw out the, the ten scenes before they dip it in the blood. Mm. And then they'll dip it in the blood, and then it'll cut to that person standing next to yeah. the d holding like a <laughs> and it's kind of comedic, almost the way it does it. Um, it's
1: like is it, it's it, just you? Is it yeah. you? Is it you? Is it? It's just yeah, it's it's quite funny. And
0: it's again, it's Gary's reaction once they get his blood tested and he's fine, and it's it's almost as if after the fact he's been proven that he's not the thing that he just loses it. Mm and just starts screaming to get him on top.
1: I like uh, Keith David in this film. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's established pretty early on that he's the kind of guy who just... would be quite happy to kill anyone, <laughs> really, just to just to make <laughs> yeah. sure that he's covered all his bases. Um, and the film does end with those two, doesn't it? It ends with him and uh, a Kurt Russell character kind of just... Yeah. Kind of chatting with each other and and I like that I mean, I mean, I proper jump in the gun here, but I love their final moments together at the end. Uh, just this kind of like is one of them <laughs> still you know the thing, and it's like well yeah. if if they are well, they're gonna die here in the cold, so it's it's like they they literally kind of almost have to keep a gun on each other in in some respects just to
0: yeah, but it's, it's the self-destructive nature of just a group of guys together, because mm. the, the, the things just escalate. You know, at one point they just fully snap and just go, you know what, we're just burning this place to the yeah. ground. You know, who cares if we're in the middle of the Antarctic?
1: But the, but there's there's a certain uh, sense of nobility in that, though, it's a sacrificial lamb kind of mentality, because, you know, there's that need to survive that actually lets. <laughs> let's just try and get the hell out of here and whatever happens to the thing, just, just leave it, mm-hmm. you know. It, it'll do whatever it does, just as long as we survive. But they actually mm-hmm. put, you know, the the rest of the world before themselves. They, they realise, you know what, this thing cannot get into the general population because if it does, humanity is... Uh, yeah, is going down the crapper, basically. So oh, yeah. the fact that they yeah, do it. say, you know what, let's burn this place knowing full well that once they do they're in the Antarctic and they're going to freeze to death um, mm-hmm. yeah that's that's quite <laughs> that's quite a quite a noble thing to do I think
0: and there's quite a lot of discussion about who is the thing in that final sequence but I don't think it really matters either way mm. you know they've, they've, they've made the decision the, the, one of the guys or maybe both the guys know they're going to die and the thing is going to probably going to hibernation until the next people stumble across it
1: there's a a really sick moment (laughs) I mean there's many sick moments in this you know we're talking about the special effects and that but um, when Blair kind of he grabs the guy by the face and his fingers kind of go into his face and he's he's just (laughs) stood there kind of holding his face with the fingers like underneath the skin and that bit just oh that got that got under my skin, it was just so horrific to look at mm-hmm. it
0: is it, i like I like the opening scene myself where you see the the husky the dog that running through the snow and the 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 Norwegian helicopter just chasing after it, firing the guns at it, and try to kill the thing mm. uh, and and you're like, what the hell's going on what why are they chasing this dog? The dog gets to the 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 camp of the Americans. Mm. And when the guy's got the gun, the Norwegian guy, and just starts randomly shooting, people just seems to be like storming through their camp and he's got these weird goggles that has a, like a line across them. And you're like, that's why he's not hitting the dog, these dodgy goggles, there's no way he's got like good enough vision to see that thing. And then you've got Gary, the marksman who, with a revolver, mm. seems to shoot him right through the small gap and something. Mm. these. It's such a weird look for that Norwegian guy and it's just such a strange opening
1: what do you think what do you make of the the character of gary because when i watch it he seems like a really nervous fellow it it feels to me like he's supposed supposed to be the leader of the group but Mm. it doesn't feel like people respect him and he feels like i don't know It feels to me like he is a bit of a nervous fellow and maybe doesn't have a lot of confidence in his in, in his own ability to lead. I mean, he gives up, at one point, his, yeah. his sense of leadership,
0: well, she, so. I, th- I think you've got that kind of look of, like, an ex-military man about him. Mm. He, he has that look, and you're right about the lack of confidence, because he's the only person there carrying a gun, and they are all friendly. It's not as if they're going to stumble across an, an enemy enemy. Well, they do, but it's not <laughs> likely that they're going to stumble across an enemy in the Antarctic. Mm. Why has he got a handgun? Mm. You know, like really on him, and he he does have that kind of nervous energy about him. I think they they know he's the boss, but I don't think he's particularly well liked.
1: Yeah, it's just it's just uh, what um, one of the things about the film I think that I I draw out from it is that there are a few of the characters that. They're fleshed out just enough to make you kind of read your own backstory into them. And there's no kind of definitive... You know, we don't get one of those moments like you do in a lot of these films where you have this quiet moment where someone will go into their history and you find out why they have this certain phobia or you find out why they are so angry or why they are scared of water or you know you know a a big character trait that is revealed and and you suddenly go oh right that's that's why they are the way they are they never do that in this film they just you get kind of little moments of character that come through each of them that give you a sense of who they are but is also open to interpretation. Like, I could imagine someone telling me about one of the characters in this and then me having a completely different opinion. But neither one would be right or wrong. It's just what you read into these characters based on the performances. And I feel like the actors were probably given quite a lot of leeway here to to really bring whatever they wanted to bring to each of these characters.
0: And I think it's the look of the characters as well or their lives they've had. They've brought their own life experiences to it they look like people that have had eventful lives Um, they're not all like young pretty boys like I said earlier on, they look like real life characters and you kind of get that with the movie I know that the doctor in the movie was uh, like a a cowboy a sort of cattle rancher and he was the only one that when they're pulling like body parts out of that first one that they bring from the Norwegian base Mm. that they're pulling out they had actually put animal organs and things like that and he was the only one that just didn't care because he gutted animals when he was out you know, doing his cowboy thing. Yeah. So they, they used certain aspects of people's lives to, to, to strengthen their characters. I was wondering what you thought about Kurt Russell in the role of McCready because other actors that were the sort of runners for it were Jeff Bridges, Christopher Walken, Nick Nolte, Chris Christopherson, Sam Shepard. Wow. Um, a couple of them turned it down. And that's how it went to Russell.
1: Right. Well, I mean... I can't remember what year the dead zone was.
0: 84, I think. Wow,
1: day. okay. Well, I mean... Whew, what what a what a one-two punch that would have been for Christopher Walken to have done the dead zone and this.
0: Sorry, the dead zone was 83.
1: 83. Oh, right. Well... I could I could see Christopher Walken in this role, to be honest. If if you take his kind of persona from the de- from the Dead Zone, the kind of like where he was in his career at that time, I can imagine him doing something quite special with this role. I like Kurt Russell here. I I, I don't mind saying. Um, I think he's right for the part. I think he does a great job. But I don't think it's. I don't necess- I wouldn't say it was necessarily a role, that oh wow, only Kurt Russell could have played that or, you know, it was made for Kurt Russell. I Mm. like Kurt Russell as an actor generally. I, I, you know, particularly in his later career, I find he's become one of those actors that if you stick him in a kind of a small role in something, he can do a lot with it. He can bring a lot of charisma, a lot of charm to to films that might otherwise not have that. Um, You know, I I think of him in... uh, Fast and Furious Seven and uh, like uh, Dead Death Proof and and films like that. He he does a lot with things that maybe a lot of actors couldn't do anything with. But from the list of those actors you mentioned, uh, yeah, Christopher Walken, I can definitely see do having done something with this role. And there was another name. There was another name you shouted out. um, Uh, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, Jeff Bridges. I definitely could see him doing something this role, in this role, uh, I think he would suit that character a lot. But mm-hmm. you know what? It doesn't matter. They went with Kurt Russell, and Kurt Russell was a good choice. I like him in this role. He brings a, a real sense of leadership from it, a, a guy who doesn't necessarily want to be the leader but has kind of been forced into that position and kind of mm-hmm. is smart, intelligent guy who is the obvious choice to take charge when when the actual leader of the team can no longer do it. And I think he fulfills that role really well. And he's got a bit of a hard man edge about him as well, so you believe you yeah. believe it when he kind of... You know, in the few moments in the film where he becomes a man of action. Um, mm-hmm. he, he's not like a, a proper kind of sliced alone, Arnold Schwarzenegger-type action hero, but he's just... He's he's gruff and rough enough around the edges to believe that actually, yeah, this is a guy who could take charge when he needs to.
0: He's mm-hmm. that kind of um, the man with no name feeling about him. Mm. You know the, the kind of cowboyish look, and he's he, he shot that way because he's he's got that silly hat that's probably not practical for the the weather <laughs> that he's in. And he, some of the stances that he's got as well, known that Carpenter is a huge Western fan. Mm. And you can see some of the aspects leading into that character because he looks very different from almost every other character in the movie. Like we said about the ending, the ending is pretty pitch perfect for this kind of movie, but there was a couple of other endings made for it. There was one which, um, as the the embers died down on the fire between the two guys, there was a tracking shot that panned to a dog running away, mirroring the the first opening (laughs) scene. And then there was, uh, there's rumours that there's another scene filmed where Kurt Russell is back in civilization, and they're doing the test on him. And it seems to finish there. All right. Okay. But I think I like the way the movie has that nihilistic you-don't-know-what's-going-to-happen, you-don't-know-how-it's-going-to-end kind of feeling about
1: it. It's very sombre. I I like movies that end like that. There's, uh, so th- there's this film with Ryan Gosling uh, called Half Nelson and... It's It kind of ends in a similar fashion, in the sense that these two characters who've kind of gone on this journey together, they're still quite broken. They, they, they still don't look like they've got the most hopeful future together. But Ryan Gosling's character cracks this joke, and it just ends on that. He cracks this joke, they both kind of laugh about it, and then it cuts to credits. And it's it's mm-hmm. like in many ways it's a really somber ending and there was uh, I watched uh, Green Room as well just recently and that's the same i loved the ending of that film like there's there's a few moments throughout when when the band members in that film are, are kind of trying to pick their desert island band and the, and this one character kind of can't do it he can't, he can't quite think of it and then right at the end the last scene like you know he, he finally thinks of his desert island, island band and he says hey I've you know i've just realized what my desert island band is and the woman he's talking to just turns to him and says tell someone who gives it you know <laughs> and then it just cuts to credits, and it's like and i love endings like that i love endings where you just have two characters who've literally just gone through the wars are sat there kind of all beaten up and then a, somebody says something, and the other car, the other character is kind of like nonplussed about it. And you cut to credits. Mm-hmm. It's just like you kind of leave these characters in a in a dark, almost depressing place. But you have like a dark sense of humour about it as well. Uh, and right. I, I really like that. And this film does it perfectly.
0: And this is a this is part of Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy loosely tied together trilogies because the three movies that he did they're all like downer endings like The Thing, Prince of Darkness or In the Mouth of Madness is the other two that round out this apocalypse trilogy right. and they're all kind of similar the downer endings they're not the happy Hollywood type of thing <laughs> and this was definitely a studio a studio movie this is the, the, the probably the first and only one that Carpenter did where he had a decent budget mm. to really do his, his vision and with some of that money he brought in yeah, Ennio Morricone. Yeah,
1: I, I was gonna. I wanted to get around to Ennio Morricone because I
0: was surprised
1: actually when his name appeared in the credits, because John mm. Carpenter does have a history of doing his own scores, his own music for films.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's one of the, the the best things about it. They've got one of the best people to do scores simply because they probably got studio money. Mm. And he does a John Carpenter. work. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's it. And it's just like, I mean, I've heard stories about John Carpenter being quite a hard man to work with. Um, he, uh, you know, I, I I don't know how much credence to, to give to them, but seeing as a lot of people have said that, you've got to assume there is something in it. Um. And, yeah, you do get the sense that actually maybe there was quite a lot of interference there, that John Carpenter kind of, may, maybe, maybe at the behest of the studio, was, was given Ennio Morricone to, to do this score. And I love Ennio Morricone. I, uh, you know, I, he's done some of the greatest scores in film history. But like you mm-hmm. said, you, you, you listen to this score, and it doesn't feel like one of his. It doesn't sound like one mm-hmm. of his. It, feel, it sounds like a John Carpenter score, that, just that kind of monotonous heartbeat that just kind mm-hmm. of builds throughout, that it's just, just keeps that tension going. He's, mm-hmm. he, like, Carpenter's kind of like the king of the minimal, minimalist score in which he he finds a theme that kind of relates to the to a central figure or a central character or a central threat and he has that kind of underlying the whole film and you know again it's no different here you have one of the biggest names in hollywood when it comes to writing music and and mm-hmm. you kind of really underplay it
0: you can almost picture the meeting with the like a... Morricone like bringing Carpenter in with the big orchestra and playing the <laughs> themes and Carpenter going that's good but try this and just hand him a keyboard you know? <laughs> put it on that and you'll be sorted son
1: yeah but you know it works he knows what it it's does. doing I mean particularly with horror mm-hmm. John Carpenter knows what he's doing he knows how to make a good horror movie score um, now, w- one of the things as well that I want to touch on in the film is going back to this whole element of paranoia and just the the, the characters. We we don't really have a genuine hero in this film. Mm-hmm. I mean, we look at Kurt Russell as our main character. I guess he be- he becomes, I think, the one that. I don't know, that we, that we identify with most, I think, maybe. Um, I think that's the intention at any rate. But even he does some things in this film that are really questionable. Like, he shoots a guy, he shoots one of the characters, mm-hmm. and the, the character he shoots doesn't turn out to be the thing. He's literally just killed a man. And mm-hmm. he's, he's quite cold to it. He's quite like, you know what, it's done we have to move mm. on. And, and, and he doesn't really touch on it. He, you don't really get any real sense of guilt from him. Um, you, you know, you get mm. a little bit of it. You get this look on his face, but very quickly he moves on from that. And it just kind of shows that there are no heroes in this film. There are only survivalists. Everyone in this film is trying to survive. That is their main agenda.
0: Until the last final scene where they finally just decide to. That- mm. I, you know, the the reluctant hero almost for the way they sacrifice themselves for the good decision. yeah
1: I I I think a lot of that is this you know the 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 acceptance that actually there is no way out yeah. of this we are going to die whether we like yeah. it or not no matter how much we fight we are going to die and I think we have to to say to ourselves you know what how are we going to die if if we're going to if we're going to die i want we want to say in how we're going to go we're not going to go mm-hmm. like pussies we're, we're going to go with a fight um and i think that kind of becomes the mentality towards the end of the film yeah so so that kind of really does away with uh, my whole speech about nobility at, at, at earlier on which is that it, in fact they're just they're primarily survivalists and their their kind of desire to I don't know, save humanity by burning this place down isn't entirely altruistic.
0: No. No. But I mean, as soon as all the equipment gets damaged on the base, they're kind of screwed <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, and, and and they kind of run through the gamut of emotions, you know, they want to survive, they want to save themselves and then when they realise they've no hope then they kind of give up and it's just a case of it's not so much as I'm saving humanity it's I'm taking this thing with me <laughs> you, <know? laughs> it's, you can view it several different ways it's, it's great anything else you want to add to the thing
1: I will say that I, I do love the cinematography as well in this film it it
0: mm-hmm.
1: it feels very different to most of Carpenter's work the, the, the work of his yeah. that I've seen at any rate um, I, and again I think that goes back to like you say this this is a a proper sh- Hollywood studio film he's got the money behind him he's got the backing and that shows on screen like you look at a lot of his other films because they're independent they, they have a very independent feel about them they have a very low budget feel about them they, they don't yeah. Always have the best cinematography. Now, I I like Halloween. I like I like what he did with that film. Uh, you know, from from a low budget kind of standpoint. But I often I often hear a lot of people praising sometimes the cinematography in that film, as if a lot of it, you know, as if as if some of it was genuinely kind of genius moments of cinematography and. It's far from the case. Most of the time I feel in that film, it is simply down to the fact that they do not have the money. They don't have the money to do certain things, so they have to hide things. They have to, you know, put things in darkness and, and, you know, they they often do that roving camera. The, the, The cinematography in that film isn't what I would call earth shattering um i think mm-hmm. again it's a film that hinges primarily on a good concept on a very basic concept that john carpenter does very well um but this film ge- I would genuinely say you know th- th- there's some very good use of lighting uh particularly when they're yeah. they're outside and you get kind of a lot of pu- blue hues to it um and, and, and yeah, and a lot of the stuff inside um, is just yeah, I, I, a lot of effort has been paid I think to to this film that maybe wasn't done in, in a lot of his earlier work.
0: Yeah, it would have been interesting to see where it, it could have gone if he did more studio movies where this kind, had this kind of money because, like you said, there's lots of nice filmmaking techniques that he uses in this that he, it doesn't always using other movies, probably down to costs, time, budget, whatever. Especially, like, like you said, inside the compound, inside the building, they're all kind of claustrophobic shots, you know, everybody's on top of each other, they're, they're moving around about each other, it's an enclosed space. He uses a couple of split diopter shots as well, which are really hard to pick out because of the the way he uses them. And then he's got the map paintings as well. It's a kind of cheap way of doing things. But it looks really well like the, the UFO that they find under the ice as a map painting. You know, and it just it looks, it's good enough, it does the job, it looks great. But I think it's because it's of the, the snow round about as well, you don't really notice that it sticks out too much, the, the, the map painting look. But, but it's got a lot of nice touches in this movie that don't always show themselves in other movies. But I think that's why this is probably Carpenter's best film. Um, doesn't mean it's the most in- enjoyable. one of his, you know, a lot of people have got their their own carpenter favorites. Um, but it's definitely the city best one that he made, and it was a notable flop as well when it was released.
1: Wow, this this was a flop,
0: was it? Oh, you didn't know? No, 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 no either. Didn't. this tanked. This this tanked big. Wow, style. I I actually um, I was
1: yeah. under the impression that this did very well. But then then I guess if. If Carpenter didn't make many big studio films after this, then I guess that's a good explanation as to why.
0: Yeah, this, this died a death. It, it, it got poor reviews. Um, it did really poorly at the box office. Get poor reviews? it, was, it got poor good reviews grief. as well, yeah.
1: You look at it now, it's in the top 250 on IMDb and everyone loves it. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's, it just seems to have grown. It's, got, it's, it's gotten better over the wow. years or people have reevaluated it. But at the time, it was really, really bad. In fact, Carpenter was... There was a a point where he may not have got another job because of this. <laughs> um, he, he quickly managed to secure... I think it was Christine was his next yeah. movie. Um And then he did finally work with Jeff Bridges with Starman the year after that. But I think he had to fire out a couple of quick movies to get back into the business because mm. I think he was going to get... Pushed out because of how badly this was received. Blimey. And notice it was also re- uh, released on the same day as another science fiction flop at the time, Blade Runner.
1: Oh, yeah. that.
0: Yeah, two, of the, two of them came out the same day and two of them died. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, you know, Blade Runner's a load of rubbish in it, so it's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> joke, joke.
0: Wh- <laughs> which Blade Runner are you talking about? Which one of the oh, 10 versions?
1: Man. I, I love the final cut. The final cut for me is, yeah, the final cut.
0: Uh, how these two movies came out and were classified as flops, I will have no idea.
1: I, I just think Anything. they were ahead of the time, is the is simple fact of the matter. I, I think, um, I don't think that people really wanted to see a film about paranoia, about people who, you know, turn on each other. You know, we've not long since come out of the Vietnam War. Um, You know, this is an American film, so obviously we're talking about American audiences. I think that they were probably still a bit sore on that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to have a film that is all about paranoia, that is all about the enemy within, about turning on themselves, I, I don't think that was particularly palatable to people. Um... And again, you know, you look at Blade Runner, it's it's actually quite a depressing depiction of the future. People wanted mm-hmm. hope. They wanted to look at you know, a, a brighter future, not not one that we were drenched in constant rain and you know, overcrowding, population and and basically reality, which is Kind of, you know, these days the tables have turned. We kind of look at films like that and, and they help us to deal with reality, whereas back then I'm not so sure they were ready for it. I think I think they were just ahead of their time.
0: Yeah, and I think that's proven by, by the legacy that the movies have now. You know, they are regarded as classic movies for a reason. You know, they weren't... They, they, but you're right. I mean, the, the two of them are the two of them are kind of similar as well. They're both very bleak. Overall, I think the thing is a classic for a reason. It is a it is a marvelous movie. I'm not going to say anything that hasn't been said before. I like everything about it. I think the special effects still hold up. I like all the characters. I like the fact that it's not black and white. That the characters are, are as muddy as the situation that they're in. And I just think it's a terrific watch. And it's one that I don't think I'm ever going to tire of watching. I love it. I love the, the conversations that it inspires. And for me, it's easily a six out of five.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I I really liked it. I really like this film. Uh, I, like I say it's the first time I've seen it properly. Watched it from start to finish. I was quite surprised by just how much i liked it and by just how much it held up to be honest uh there's a, there's a couple of dodgy bits in it uh that have d- that haven't dated very well mainly like the computer stuff so whenever they're looking at computer monitors you're just like yeah right uh so that th- that's the only thing really that if you're kind of if you want to watch the prequel the new prequel that they've done back to back with this that's the only thing really that kind of that causes a disconnect between the two films um other than that yeah they follow on really nicely from each other so that's a testament really to just how well this film has aged um like you I like the characters in it I it has that kind of you know when it, when i when i think about aliens the the james cameron version when you've got all those different characters you put this group of different characters together um they're not just stock characters they they're very real people you feel like each one of them is a real person and this is c- quite possibly john carpenter's best film I, I you know i still think there's an argument to be made for halloween um just because of you know the what he did on such a minuscule budget, but yeah he proved that he wasn't a one trick pony you give him a a studio budget and he delivers he delivered this and it is a a classic horror film. I understand why people give this the classic status that it has and i i i'm not quite willing to give it a five star review just yet because I've only seen it the once um, I like films to, to hold up on multiple viewings before I give it the five star review so I'm going to give this a four and a half so you know it's not far off at all if I watch this again a, a couple more times and it still has the same impact on me then yes yeah, you're looking at a five star film yeah,
0: that's fair enough. And, and it's hard to give a movie a five star on a first watch until you've re- fully evaluated it or let it settle in your thoughts anyway. Mm. Yeah. So I'd like to thanks everybody for tuning in and listening to this special bonus episode of Brits One Flicks. And as usual, our social media links will be in the comment box below. Please drop along to iTunes and give us a, a five star review. That would be excellent. Any kind of review would be grateful. It would help us be discovered. And give us a little ego boost as well So thanks for listening and we'll see you back On the 14th of the month with our usual podcast
1: This thing doesn't want to show itself It wants to hide inside an imitation It'll fight if it has to But it's vulnerable out in the open If it takes us over Then it has no more enemies Nobody left to kill it And then it's won
0: You're not looking at porn are you Ryan?
1: Man, I think the diazepam's kicking in. <laughs> oh, good grief!
0: Oh, I can't wait till people are listening to this and just welcome to our thing review. Brian, what, t- what dates was the Vietnam War? Was it... and when was next in the office? I can't remember. Yeah, so the thing is, it's quite good, but you know, Cuban missile crisis.
1: As the team slowly realized that any one of them could be this...
0: Oh. <laughs> I'm
1: just going to do the whole thing again.